So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the May 2018 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation. Uh, my first guest is Dr. Robert McCaffrey, the Regents Professor of Medicine from the University of Oklahoma Stevenson Cancer Center and the Oklahoma Tobacco Research Center, both at the University of Oklahoma. Bob, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Kyle. My next guest, his co-author, Dr. Raj Desai from the Chicago Chess Center and the University of Illinois at Chicago. Both of these fine gentlemen are here to talk about their editorial that is in chess. Is Big Tobacco still trying to deceive the public? This is no time to rest on our laurels. So, Raj, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys, for having me. So, so guys, um, you know, fantastic article. Um, it, it, I think it, you know, it makes several amazing points, and and uh, I think you know clearly presents some some strong data and, and 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 backs it up, or takes these opinions that are I think universally pretty agreed upon and backs it up more importantly with strong data. So, either one of you, launch it. What were you trying to accomplish? What what prompted the writing? I guess. Or Kyle, if it's okay, I'll go ahead and take the lead on this. To start with, and then let, let Raj chime in. What prompted this, of course, was the final. Finally, we had publication of the corrective statements that uh, started in November. And that by the corrective statements, I mean the statements that were ordered by the court for the tobacco companies to not only publish but pay for the publication, outlining part of what they have done over the last half a century in terms of lying and deceiving the public and policymakers regarding tobacco. Their actions, of course, have been despicable, and I think that uh, Judge Kessler uh, you know, put it very, very nicely in her judicial opinion that uh, they marketed and sold their lethal products with zeal, with deception, with a single-minded focus on their financial success, and without regard for the human tragedy or social costs, et cetera. So I, I think that that was very well put by Judge Kessler. So our, our purpose was really to draw attention to our members uh, to the, this fact, but more specifically to generate some action on part of our members so that they let other people know, let their patients know, let their legislators know, let uh, you know the, the public know that, in fact, the tobacco companies have been guilty of racketeering, basically, uh, that they have been guilty of lies and deceptions and collusion to, uh, to addict our children and to uh, you know, get laws either prevented or passed that would be beneficial to them. Their, their behavior has been despicable, and we all have known that, but we just wanted to use the opportunity of the corrective statements to draw this to the attention of people. So, if, if I may, it, it, you know, it's to reinforce the fact that despite obviously the original settlement and that sort of creates a landmark, you know, the, it's not like the problem solved. <laughs> you know, that, that's no one can view that. Sure, that was a victory, followed then by a dialing back of what the settlement actually was and a dialing back of the language and obviously a, a continued effort by the industry to weaken laws around the country and essentially undermine anything. Uh, positive that might have come from the settlement in the first place. Uh, that is correct. And by the way, it wasn't a settlement. Good point. It was a I used the wrong word. verdict. Thank you. You're right. I did use the wrong term. Thank <clears throat> you for correcting me. 
And that's, that is key, a judicial verdict, as, as, as opposed to a settlement, because settlement doesn't imply whether or not there was a finding. Correct. And Raj. there were more than over 400 findings of, of fact of how the companies have, have deceived, and that was 11 years ago. So they right. have continued with this uh, behavior. So it's much more than that. We have evidence that they have affected the laws in, in every state of, uh, of the nation. Uh, but uh, I'll stop and let, let Raj chime in here. No, I think that's a, that's a great point, Bob. And, and, you know, I think really a great summary of our uh, editorial and, and really what's happening with uh, uh, the big tobacco. And, and finally, after several years, as you said, you know, the settlement and the ruling, um, and, and, and really that highlights a few aspects that we had been uh, sort of uh, that been addressed regarding the risk of smoking, the health effects of secondhand smoke, the, the addictiveness of nicotine, and really the way the uh, tobacco companies were trying to portray uh, the risk, as well as cigarettes were marketed as low tar or light, and, and really the manipulation of the delivery of nicotine. And, and really, uh, in terms of the corrective statements, the, what, what happened was uh, finally we can make uh, you know, market as well as uh, come up with uh, newspaper and television ads beginning of uh, November 26th, uh, 2017. So this is uh, really a huge step, but as Kyle pointed out, it's not, we are not done as yet, and we have a lot of things to do. Yeah, I know none of us are lawyers, but help me understand from the original ruling about what had to be, you know, the, the preamble to this this uh, campaign of, of information is particularly the part that said um, the the last you know sentence. This is the truth that after you know it's like I'll read the statement from your article. The preamble was to read quote a federal court has ruled that Altria R J Reynolds Tobacco Lorillard and Philip Morris USA deliberately deceived the American public about and it was going to be the five topics and has ordered those companies to make this statement. Period. This is the truth. Period. You know, end quotes, um, and then. But during various appeals, they were able to remove the words "deliberately deceive the American public about" and also be able to remove "this is the truth." I, you know, again, I, I know that we're not lawyers, but that it seems odd to me that that language like that, especially part that was part of the original ruling, um, because it definitely weakens the statement, doesn't it? Um, uh, was able to ultimately be removed. Do we know on what grounds? It's not like the evidence no, changed. I, it's not like the yeah. evidence changed. <laughs> the evidence didn't change. And no, I've, I've not read the uh, the entire judicial ruling on that, so I can't actually uh, tell you, you know, exactly why the tobacco companies got that removed from the courts. We were disappointed that that happened. And by the way, the tobacco companies are still fighting this. The uh, the final rule has not yet been made on the. Uh, tobacco package on search. That is the, the little statement that needs to go in the tobacco packages every quarter for uh, for all the tobacco brands made by these companies. Uh, and that the, the final ruling on that is to come up this this month, I believe, uh, on the on search. So they have continued fighting this. They've, they've tried to to spin it by saying, "Oh, gee, you know, we uh, we're we're new companies." You know, we've changed. Uh, this ruling was 11 years ago. They haven't changed one bit. They uh, are, are trying to spin this in a positive way, 
and still deceive everyone about what their purposes are. Actually, their purpose is very simple, and that is to addict as many people as they can and keep making as much money as they can. Yeah, and let's talk about that. Like you point out, you know, that the the this attempt to you know rebrand themselves, the you know the Philip Morris funding of the uh, eighty million dollars for the Foundation for a Smoke Free World, which, as you point out, both of you that they said smoke free, not tobacco free, and you know it it it's, it always strikes me as a disingenuous statement. If by definition, my job as a company is to make cigarettes, in what world would anyone think that I would want someone to be smoke free? <laughs> like that's you know as a as a company. So the idea that they're even funding it, it sort of seems like just window dressing. Plus, for companies of this magnitude and size, eighty million dollars sure sounds like a lot of money over twelve years, but in reality, it's it's trivial. It's a drop in the bucket. You know, recently there was the World Conference on Tobacco or Health held in uh, in South Africa, and if you look at their final declarations, the the first two uh, really touch on this. I won't read them in there entirely, but the first one says we call on governments to stop tobacco industry interference and accelerate implementation of the World Health Organization. Uh, uh, the, the FCTC, yeah, using a, the, the uh, whole government approach. And then we urge government, scientists, et cetera, et cetera, to reject or cease engagement with the Philip Morris International-funded Foundation for a Smoke-Free World and other initiatives of the tobacco industry. So I think that that's pretty clear. And, and just to add to that, is, uh, you know, this is not a – a U.S. problem. It, it is a worldwide problem. And, uh, you know, uh, as we know, you know, a lot of uh, people die from that. Approximately 6 million deaths are per year attributed to uh, tobacco, tobacco use. And, and really, cigarette smoking is responsible for more than 480,000 deaths per year in the United States as well. And there was a recent study done by JA et al., and they examined adults in uh, from the U.S. Uh, National Health Interview Survey Database, and they linked it to National Death Index. And what they found was the probability of surviving from age 25 to 79 was twice as great in those who never smoked as compared to someone who is uh, a current smoker. And, also, and, and really what that meant was smokers die 10 years earlier than non-smokers. Now, Take this into perspective, and and really, what you know, tobacco smoke, tobacco, big tobacco is doing is they are targeting this to our kids, our youth, and really, you know, decreasing the life expectancy overall. And uh, really, we need to, as a community, and we have a great opportunity to work with our legislators, uh, even at at the grassroots levels, you know, talk to our patients in our offices, in our institutions, in, in the hospital systems to really spread awareness of what tobacco industry is doing. Well, and, and as you point out, I mean, both of you, you know, a lot of this, you know, settled in around the United States, but without a doubt, um, the culture of smoking continues to, to rise uh, in other parts of the world, and that whatever potential gains that we're making in the United States in regards to smoking, if any, um, are being diluted out by what's essentially happening on a worldwide scale. 
Oh, that's exactly right. And in fact, while Philip Morris and others are saying, uh, "Gee, you know, we recognize that uh, that smoking is bad," they are still promoting smoking in every part of the world, including the United States, even though they say that they're not. Uh, Philip Morris, of course, uh, is just trying to say smoke-free because they have a lot of non-combustible products coming out, as does RJR and now BAT, of course, uh, with the uh, with the merger. But uh, you know they, they're trying to promote their non-combustible tobacco products, but they are still uh, perhaps not as immediately deadly, although we still don't have the data on that. But there are still deadly products, and you're still dealing with an addiction. And they are, as, as Raj said, they are really focusing on young people. And we know that nicotine itself has about the same effect on the developing brain as alcohol. That is, it stunts the development of, of the adolescent brain uh, so that there are problems with uh, development and in, in decision-making and, and other aspects that you expect from the adult brain. But, you know, the brain doesn't stop developing until somebody's about 25. So while they're pushing this product, this addictive product, on youth, and they are focusing on youth, they they still uh, think of youth, as they did years ago, as replacement smokers, but now they're thinking of them as, you know, new people to addict. Uh, It still has a very devastating effect on the young people that they're focusing on. And and we do know that there is a certain attraction. They they have a lot of products. While while they can't put flavors other than menthol and cigarettes, they produce a lot of other products that have flavors. They have smokeless tobacco with flavors. They have little cigars with flavors. uh, And they have packaging that really looks like candy. So we know that those packagings and those products are not designed for the 40-year-old smoker. They're designed to start the 16-, 17-, 18-year-old person smoking. Right. And then just to uh, make another point, as Kyle pointed out, that, you know, uh, in the ruling, you know, and his question was appropriate, what, what led to the changes. But going back to the original ruling, and just to highlight what was said in the original ruling, uh, in terms of addictiveness of smoking, and as Bob touched upon that, is that it's not easy to quit. And when you right. smoke, the nicotine actually changes the brain. That's why quitting is so hard. And this is part of the corrective statement that was uh, that the text of uh, and part of the corrective statements text by the court uh, in the case of uh, U.S. versus Philip Morris. Right. It was point number three that the addictive nature of nicotine um, and then the manipulation of the delivery of nicotine, which was point number five in the original um, ruling. Um, and I think that, you know, we, you're, we're highlighting that. I mean, so from that perspective, um, you know, other uh, substances that have addictive quality, say in particular alcohol, um, you know, there's a drinking age, obviously, of 21. Um, there's been a push, and with very much large push back to raise the smoking age to 21. Um, and it's it, it's hard to find an argument outside of the tobacco industry, particularly simply just saying, well, we want more customers, to argue against raising the smoking age from a perspective of, 
well, you're, you know, at least have more brain development, that you have, um, you're past that same level of influence, you know, that at least theoretically the average 21-year-old is slightly more mature than the 18-year-old. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say other than the pure economic argument from a, from a tobacco industry, but from a tobacco industry perspective, why anyone would fight raising the smoking age. Well, Kyle, you know, I, I often say in, my, in some of my presentations that the tobacco industry is the only purely evil legal industry that we have, and I define that as someone who knowingly and purposefully causes harm to innocent others for their own enrichment. And that's exactly right. what the tobacco industry is, and that's what they do. No, and I think that's a valid point because it, it, this comes up in, in other, you know, the, this discussion sometimes centers around the, the possibility of other, um, you know, dangerous substances, right? So alcohol, we just used alcohol as an example. But of course, alcohol in mild use or moderation, um, maybe even, you know, we can debate this, maybe even has health benefits, right? But, right. Um, with, and, and of course, in the alcohol industry, you know, essentially, recognizes that, does some amount from the perspective of, of, of uh, public service to try to, you know, prevent underage drinking, et cetera, they should do more. But we all, at least there's a recognition, and there's, as you just said, some potential, like, non-harm. But um, yet to see a single study that's ever demonstrated a health benefit to cigarettes. Well, <laughs> as many people have pointed out, cigarettes are the only product when used as intended will kill a third to a half of their users. Absolutely. I think I, I have not come across any study as well. Just to, exactly. you know, I think, <laughs> I, I, just to make another uh, point of the same thing, what we are talking about, I think in the corrective statement, what, what they really specify, and this is in the corrective statement, smoking kills on average of 1,200 Americans every day. And this statement is a little dated as well. Uh, more worse. people... More people die every year from smoking than from murder, AIDS, suicide, drugs, car crashes, and alcohol combined. Smoking causes heart disease, emphysema, acute myeloid leukemia, and I think we all know what the disease it does. The next point they also mention is it also causes low birth weight in newborns and cancers, uh, specifically uh, of the cervix and also reduced fertility. So, again, I think it's just... Uh, it, it, it is, we, we know that it does not benefit, and I think obviously we, it was a huge uh, uh, success that we could increase the age to 21. Uh, that said, I think uh, it, we shouldn't stop here. I think really uh, smoking overall uh, should be looked at something as uh, one of the preventable causes of uh, mortality and uh, and morbidity to uh, and and really it, it is a, it's an epidemic and we need to look at it as such and work towards uh, uh, eliminating it uh, as a whole. So so what what you know so we got we have a lot of listeners all over the world and in, yeah. in various countries that some of our listeners are at there 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 may not be as large of a of a anti smoking. Uh, apparatus, if you will, and and you guys highlight some of this at the end about things that you know we should be doing as a profession. But could you highlight some of the things that the individual can do? I mean, clearly all of us individually take care of patients, and in the capacity of that, we you know we work and address 
smoking cessation. But, you know, it's one, on one level, you can imagine someone saying, gosh, this seems like a, a massive problem that needs to be, you know, happening at the regulatory level, government, federal level, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what can me, the individual, do? Um, and so, you know, you, and you talk about it towards the end of your, of your paper, but I was hoping you could highlight all on that. Sure. Uh, well, it, first of all, policy is the, the uh, greatest tool that we have. But uh, as individuals, I think uh, smokers see their physician more often than non-smokers for obvious reasons. And I think that you know, the question needs to be asked at every visit whether or not uh, they are, are smokers. Uh, and if they are, then they need to be you know, uh, educated about what's available to help them stop smoking. I think the nicotine replacement products are probably available in most places. Uh, they, uh, I will say that most people who quit quit cold turkey, but we know that it takes an average of about 30 attempts before somebody stops smoking. So uh, the, the use of nicotine replacement therapy or the pharmacologic uh, therapies can be useful and increases the uh, percentage of successful quit attempts, if you will. So I think that as physicians, we always need to be aware of the smoking history of our patients. Smoking will affect virtually every organ system, so it's not just a lung or heart like a lot of people, a lot of the lay people may think about. We know that it affects every organ system, the, the eyes, the skin, the bone marrow, systems that most people don't think about as as uh, having an adverse effect from smoking. Let's not forget Bob. secondhand smoke. <laughs> right. So, Which you I think know, is also I, it's important. So go ahead, Raj, go ahead. I agree. I think, uh, you know, to, uh, to answer your question, you know, how should we get involved? And I think really, I think uh, getting involved uh, with uh, the legislatures, uh, you know, uh, legislators' uh, representatives in the community is going to be very important. And at the same time, uh, really, uh, you know, getting local uh, in in your county, in your uh, community, in the school, and spreading the word. Where really, I think the kids are getting targeted, and I think that's what we really need to focus on uh, to begin with. The kids uh, in their schools local, regional, getting involved with national organizations, uh, uh, movements such as uh, with CHEST, uh, American Lung Association, and they, they have a lot of initiatives as well uh, where uh, you can have a voice and, and make an impact. Let's not forget uh, how a uh, tobacco company gets their marketing is through uh, big, uh, you know, commercials, although those commercials have gone down now uh, or being uh, actually eliminated, we, we need to target through commercials, television, and also uh, through uh, even uh, places where they sell their products as well. And as Bob pointed out, and making sure that the answers um, uh, have information regarding the harmful effects of tobacco smoking as well. And, I was, uh, I, go ahead, Bob. Go ahead. Ask your question. No, I was going to add just that you know, whereas clearly at the at the larger level policy and what we as individual physicians can do is 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 without a doubt advocate to our policymakers because we know our professional societies are, and so that's clearly important. But in the end, a lot of times this is a numbers game, and the more that they hear 
um, from individuals, um, the more powerful the message. But I think also that additional, you know, push at the local level. So sure, something that might affect your entire state is clearly a, a great benefit. But the other way, of course, is to start small and have it roll out. You know, smoke-free Chicago became smoke-free Illinois. I mean, clearly both efforts were, were being pushed at the same time. But, you know, a local organization worked very hard to get Chicago to become smoke-free, right? And so... It was, you know, in, or even just individually at, before it became, you know, law, this building will be smoke-free or you cannot smoke in the yard around the building, etc. You know, there are simple ways that make it, you know, every little bit of a barrier, you know, higher taxes, better labeling, etc. Every simple little thing that could uh, decrease the, the rate of smoking or decrease the chance of someone starting, putting up another barrier. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Kyle. Uh, the other thing, the other point I would make is that a lot of people, well, I should back up by saying that here at the Oklahoma Tobacco Research Center, we did a national survey prior to the publication of the corrective statements to see if people were aware of the issues brought up by the corrective statements. And, of course, a lot of people were aware of the harm of tobacco. They weren't necessarily aware that the tobacco industry had manipulated the uh, the cigarettes and the uh, tobacco plants to increase the um, both the availability and the and the level of nicotine uh, in their products. Uh, the awareness that they had actually been found guilty of racketeering, uh, you know, it was not there for most people. They they didn't know that. And I think that when you tell a legislator that uh, you know, gee, you know, Mr. Legislator or Mrs. Legislator, you're listening to the representative of racketeers. You know, right. they're kind of like the mafia. Do you right. know that? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you think of, you think of every uh, Hollywood mob movie. They always talk about the RICO <laughs> Act, right? I mean, but that's right. to make a valid point, the RICO Act applies here and is why this, you know, this finding occurred. I mean, this, we call this an industry, and, and our legislators listen to their lobbyists, and they're essentially listening to people that have been equated and found guilty in the same way the mob has. And that's right. something maybe everyone should be thinking about. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> and and so, these are the people who are, who are helping to not only pass or prevent passage of our laws, they actually write the laws. We have good examples of, of laws that have been passed here in Oklahoma where the tobacco industry has actually written the law. <laughs> the, the wolf guarding the hen house, right? Right. <laughs> So, gentlemen, we've been we've been talking for a little bit, and obviously, um, uh, for our listeners, uh, without a doubt, download if you don't, if you haven't, if you don't have it in front of you, get the get the editorial. It, it's a fantastic read. It, it highlights what we've been talking about, but also gives you the you know the references and the, and the links to to uh, everything that's you know to back all this up with data. And I think that's important because if nothing else, to motivate the individuals listening to become a, a force for change within their own personal communities. Um, and and you know you got to start somewhere. As my as my father-in-law always says to me, how do you eat an elephant? It's one bite at a time. And so uh, yeah. this is kind of the same scenario here. Um, but, but what haven't we talked about or what kind of other thoughts? I want to be respectful of your time and, and our listeners' time, but what other things uh, should we, have we not addressed or, or need to expand upon? If well, I, 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 I think that as uh, you know, as physicians, I, I think we need to work with our public health groups 
be certain that we have comprehensive approaches to tobacco control, and those comprehensive approaches include raising taxes, uh, which is probably our single strongest tool to uh, to reduce tobacco use. But uh, the the whole policy armamentarium, raising taxes, counter advertising, uh, community uh, awareness, and and uh, uh, support for uh, for clean air laws. Uh, for restricting advertising, for uh, increasing the uh, legal age of purchase to 21. All of these are important for all of us as, uh, as physicians, as, uh, as health care professionals, to, to really be involved in the public health efforts in our own local communities and, and uh, states. So I, I think that that's really the primary message. We need to use this as a springboard to increase our activities to, to fight this single uh, greatest preventable cause of premature death and morbidity uh, in our society, as, as Raj pointed out earlier. I, I, I echo uh, Bob's uh, statement as well. And, and one, of the, one other thing I would like to mention, I think we should, uh, our aim, our goal should be not only to have a smoke-free world, but I think it should be probably a smoke and tobacco-free world. And, right. and really, I think that's uh, what we should be looking at. Agree. Agree. Guys, this was fantastic. I really appreciate, uh, you know, it's, it's clear, you know, the, it, it, what is, what's, I think, unique for all of us is that, you know, we all have things that, you know, that motivate us, and, and, and we have data, and, and clearly data is always very important, but it's also the passion, right, that especially the two of you, you can hear it in your voice, you can feel it in your writing, um, but it's that passion that, that honestly, if you're in... If you're a physician, but in particular, if you're a pulmonary physician, how can you not have that energy and passion and drive to try to rid this world of tobacco? Um, you know, pure and simple, it is. It is. We see it on a daily basis. The scourge, you know, uh, from this. Um, so, thank you so much for your editorial, and, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you thank for you having us, Kyle.